From the studios of KPCW in Park City, it's This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about the environment and our relationships with it. I'm Chris Cherniak. And I'm Nell Larson. Well, tis the season to bear gifts of plastic, cardboard, and wine bottles to Recycle Utah. They collect and process tons of it over the holidays, but this morning we're going to focus on plastics and the challenges of recycling it. We're going to be uh, speaking with several individuals about this. Uh, Smokey Peck and Scott Simar are both uh, representatives of and work at Pro Recycling Group uh, uh, in Inner West Paper. Uh, we'll get them to explain the, the relationships there and what they do with that company and how they recycle and manage plastics uh, in their company. And we'll also we'll kind of localize the story by talking to Carolyn Wara, the executive director of Recycle Utah here in Park City, about what they do with their plastics. Because there's a number of different things that can be done with plastics. And there's a lot of challenges associated with that because there's a lot of plastics. And it seems like there's more coming down the pipeline. Now, all of that in the first part of the show. Then in the second part of the show, we'll speak with Jordan Clayton. He's a supervisor and data collection officer with the Utah Snow Survey. And we'll talk with him about the state's ongoing drought and what impact this past weekend's snowstorm might have on our snow levels, of course, mm -hmm. soil moisture, and come spring, our reservoir levels. That's right. Environmental awareness and education. That's what this green earth is all about. Stay with us. Welcome to This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about our relationships with and impacts upon the environment. I'm Chris Cherniak. I'm Nell Larson. And the first part of the show this morning, we're going to be talking about plastics. Um, heck, let's start from the be very beginning, where they come from, what they're, how they're used, and, and most importantly, what's done with them when we're finished with them. Uh, we make our uh, level best efforts to recycle them as much as possible, but that's a challenge. And so this morning we're going to be talking about those challenges uh, with three individuals uh, on the line is uh, Smokey Peck and Scott Simar. They are with Interwest Paper Pro Recycling Group. I'll, I'll let the two of you kind of give us a more formal introduction in a minute. And also here in the studio is Carolyn Wara. She's executive director of Recycle Utah, and she's here to give us kind of the local perspective on plastics. So, uh, Smokey and Scott, sir, first of all, thank you so much for joining Nell and myself on this green earth. Thanks, thanks for joining us. All right, well, let's, yeah, thank you. Okay, I know you, if you're sharing your line or so, just give us tell us who's talking. Let's start first. Give us a, a formal introduction of yourselves and uh, and your titles. Anybody? Scott, go ahead, Scott. Uh, so my name is Scott Seymour. I am with the uh, Director of Business Development for Pro Recycling Group. So we are a shared company with Pro Baylor Services that handles sales and service of equipment for waste and recycling. And then we also do a brokerage portion and materials recycling on the NRWest paper side. I've uh, been with the company just under six years um, and just an ever learning process in this industry as things are always changing, so. Right. Uh, forward to talking with y'all. Okay. And Smokey? Yeah, my name's Smokey Peck. I'm the president and owner of Interwest Pro Baylor and the Pro Recycling Group. Um, it was actually started in 1978 by a gentleman, and I came on board in 
2003, uh, seen a need uh, for a lot of plastics through businesses and rural recycling programs. Um, And so we've kind of just grown up by since then to, uh, you know, help communities recycle more and make sure it's taken care of. Okay. And I guess that's that's the jumping off point uh, for this conversation, because we all know that uh, plastics can be a real challenge in trying to do something with them. Let's just simply say do something with them other than have them end up in the landfill. And um, what what are the options that, uh, say, Pro Recycling Group uh, does with with their plastics? And, and is it is it recycled here in the U.S. or does it have to go overseas? Uh, all of our post-industrial plastics stay either here in the U.S. and or Canada, but it's North America. Mm. Uh, since China did the ban on all recycling scrap, um, all our post-consumer plastics uh, stay here in the U.S. and, like I said, and or Canada, depending on the needs. Okay. And, and what kinds of uses, you know, can you find for those or can companies find for recycled plastics? So like the HD milk jugs and colored jugs, um, I talked to the, the compounder in Canada, you know, and they're making pellets for like uh, underground piping, things like that. Okay. But that's, yeah, you say that's the H, HD high density uh polyethylene yeah hdpe type plastics or such uh there's there's obviously an array of different types of plastics which ones are the most difficult to find a recycling option for or upcycling option for um you know if you look at some grocery bags they'll say a number four or a number two that's where a lot of the confusion comes in in society that they think it's number two so it should go with your milk jugs or color jugs but it's a different resin and uh, those do have homes now with like treks and things like that Um, but it's I guess just the uh, recycling symbol at times can be confusing because um, they are different resins even though they have a number two on it or you know things like that one thing Excuse me. One thing I'm curious about is, um, you know, are there plastic products that we really can't recycle right now um, within North America? I think that we've probably all been seeing, you know, the news that's saying, oh, plastic is impossible to be recycled. Um, There's nothing to do with it. There's no market for it. It's actually like really, you know, next to impossible. Um, do, Do you find that to be true? In our area, I don't. This is Scott. Uh, in our area, I don't. We, we see a lot of recycling come through our facility. We see a lot of our, our recycling from our rural uh, recyclers that we use, such as Park City. We do a lot with uh, uh, Wyoming rural recycling as well. Um, the, the, the key to the, all this is cleanliness and the sorting. Um, so the biggest thing is when you get into, like, say, a curbside recycling program, sometimes you're going to get a lot more contaminant. Uh, you're going to get a lot more mixed materials just due to the fact that the stuff's going to be compacted together. Um, and then if you get into, say, clamshells, like for strawberry containers, um, it, it is a PET material, but it is a lesser quality material. So that's the hard part is, is that a lot of times coming from the actual manufacturers and the, the companies that you're buying these products from, 
uh, they they go with a lesser quality or a lesser lesser valued plastic that in turn on the other end is not recyclable. Um, it's it's similar to a, a cardboard or paper recycling where the fibers and the, the, the plastic polymers themselves get stretched out to a point where they're not able to be used again as a quality product. Uh, that's a that's an interesting point. Uh, how often can plastics, you, like you say, they kind of weather or fade in their, I guess, structural integrity over time. So, uh, but, you know, <laughs> that's easier said than done to try to understand and figure out which one is older has been recycled three or four times but but they do have an kind of an half-life to them as far as the recyclable capabilities they do and it all depends on how they're molded as well so i mean mm. you've got molds you've got uh roto molding you've got blow molding you've got a, it's there, there's so much science and things that goes into the plastics and the manufacturing and the recycling process um, that it is hard to tell obviously that's you know it's like smoky said with that uh, that triangle it's very confusing uh, especially to consumers because they see that triangle and they think, well, automatically it's something that can be recycled. It, it doesn't necessarily mean that. Um, and even on a, a larger scale, they could be recycled, but it's it's all about the cleanliness and the sorting, the sorting of the products uh, from the get-go. So I'd love to talk about, speaking of that cleanliness and sorting, um, you know, uh, sort of a general conversation about what happens with our curbside recycling, which is commingled. So we're putting our paper in, we're putting our plastic in, Aluminum we're putting cans, yeah. mixed metals, you know, yeah. all these all these different Styrofoam. things. Right. Like what, you know, how, how does that get sorted and um, is the cleanliness an issue in a system like that? Uh, for single stream, it's it's pretty cost costly to, to sort everything, and they use a lot of optics to help sort the plastics. Um, it, it is viable, in my opinion. Um, it's just costly. We don't do any really in-house sorting. Uh, we do clean streams ourselves, and that's what we promote, uh, like what Park City has. Um there is some contamination ratios and that I don't know. You'd have to probably have to talk to some of the local sorting facilities here. I don't know what their, their residue rate is. Um, um, but it, you know, here in, in our state, I can tell you everything that can be is being recycled. Um, when it goes across the sort line or store separation. Okay. Um, well, th this might be a good opportunity to to bring in Carolyn Wara, uh, Executive Director at Recycle Utah, because Recycle Utah kind of prides itself on cleanly or cleaning that stream, as a, as a, I like that term, clean a clean stream where you take in all types of plastics, but it's made sure that it's the individuals bringing those plastics do their best to separate them out by number or character or quality, correct? Carol? Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah we, um, there's kind of two things when it comes to plastics recycling. Um, you know, cleanliness, how clean is the plastic? Um, and we promote about 90% clean. And I tell people the best way to think about this is a peanut butter jar. Take a spatula to it, that's good enough. You don't need to use any water. A spatula and a peanut butter jar is fine. Um, a yogurt container, if you eat as much as you can with a spoon, maybe do a swipe with your finger at the end, that is clean enough. You don't need to be 
running these items through the dishwasher or anything. That would be overdoing it. So that's a good example of 90% clean. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that. And then there's also sorting of the plastics. Um, and I'm kind of, I agree with um, Smokey and Scott in that the numbers have become less important. You know, they're important to Smokey and Scott who are looking to sell the product and find a new home for it. Mm. But in terms of when you come to Recycle Utah, I really would rather just have you focus on um, drink bottles, which would be maybe your Coca-Cola comes in it, your Powerade or something has a screw top lid on it, you drink from it. Um, But that would be a PET. So uh, I'm not even tell you the number for that. Drink bottles and milk jugs will go on the right side of the plastics tent. You don't need to read numbers. And then in the left side of the plastics tent would be pretty much everything else. Um, There's a bag for soft plastics, like uh, plastic bags or uh, bags that your frozen food comes in. there's tons, like a shopping bag if you go, you know, the outlet mall or something like that. Um, plastic bags is a pretty broad thing. We kind of call it soft plastics to include everything in there. And then everything else, you know, um, I think Scott was talking about those clamshell containers. Those actually have the same number on them as a drink bottle, but they're a lower grade of that. So we really would prefer those go on the left side there. Um, and those type of plastics have a different end place than the number ones and number twos on the other side. And how, you know, how do you deal with, I guess, the the changing markets for these? Like, are you guys getting a revenue stream from the plastic that gets recycled? Um, or are you paying to have that recycled at this point? Like, give us a picture of that, your cost. Carolyn. You're talking to Carolyn. Carolyn. Yeah. Carolyn. Okay. Um, overall, plastics do have an expense to us. Most plastics do have expense to us. Um, and we kind of try to, as an organization, try to promote reduce you know, that yeah. we'd love for our plastics numbers year over year to go down um, because people found new solutions or they're bringing their own bag to the grocery store or shopping the farmer's market. There's definitely ways you can reduce your plastic use um, because it does have a, a, it does have a cost to us or so reduce would be great. Um, and then there are some revenue streams. Um, the HDPE has been a good, that's a milk jug. Um, that's been good for us lately. Um, but that's because diesel prices and fuel prices have gone up and plastic is made from oil in the first place. Mm-hmm. So if it's expensive to find uh, virgin materials, like oil to make more plastic, um, the recycled market increases. So we've seen a little bit of that with the increasing in flu- fuel costs we've seen lately. It's, so it sounds like you have you know options for most of these plastics. Really all the plastics that we bring to Recycle Utah are going to get recycled. You're going to find a, a place, a way for them to be recycled. Um, how has that like that um, atmosphere changed um, since sort of this um, ban from China for, for certain products? Um, has that changed the market? Yeah, I think... Yeah. Um, uh, Smokey and Scott would agree. I think the ban from China was actually a good thing because it's forcing the U.S. to deal with our own waste. It's something that we need to be doing. We should have been doing long ago before that ban happened. You know, a lot of uh, waste energy options are happening here in the U.S. And those have been happening in Europe for a long, long time. You know, that waste energy can be used, you know, trash is going into the system or a recycled material is going into the system, um, relying less on a virgin material to be used. You know, the um, our plastics on the left side of our tent go to a waste energy process locally about 30 miles away. It's a cement factory in Croydon, Utah. And um, we've, you know, talked to them and everything and we are okay with our plastics going there. Again, um, reduce is where we need to go with those plastics. But that's a good option locally in the U.S. You know, that factory is going to make cement no matter what. Are we going to drill more natural resource from the earth to run that factory? Are we going to use something we've already done? And I see it as a good thing because 
we've already extracted this material from the earth to make plastic. And so we're going to make sure we get the most life as possible out of that plastic. So it's kind of more of a reuse than a recycle with those types of plastics. But then the other type of plastics, they go into new materials. So it's kind of always, you know, I'm talking to Smokey and Scott, like, what should we do differently? What can we do? And can we change something? Um, the recycling market is totally ever changing. And, uh, you know, kudos to this community for keeping up with all the changes that we see. <laughs> and I think it was two years ago, we made, you know, some changes at drink bottles, milk jugs kind of thing and got more firm on that because that's to send those products to a new life. So. Well, let, let me ask that, kind of the same question to, to Scott and Smokey. Um, do you see the same challenges in revenue generation uh, that, that Carolyn was uh, alluding to uh, in a sense that what plastics are making the most money for you these days and, and what plastics are you actually end up, I don't know, I don't know if you pay to get rid of them, but where, where's the revenue for you, for your company, Smokey? So, um, so the revenue is, like Carolyn says, the revenue is really good for the uh, HD milk jugs. Uh, Colored's has dropped off HD color. The number one PET water soda bottles has really dropped off, but it's starting to come back. Um, so one of the things when China did the ban, which was, I think, in my opinion, a good good thing, it, it brought opportunity here in the North America, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, we didn't have to send items, you know, overseas and just be dumped on because, you know, truly they were being dumped on and it wasn't very good thing for recycling. Right. Um, and it all depends with, like Carolyn says, uh, with oil prices and uh, consumption. Um, if, if, you know, if building starts to drop like they predict, you know, they're not going to be making as much uh, underground pipes, so prices may drop on the HD materials. Um, but you never know. It, it always seems like when HD goes up, PET goes down, and then vice versa. When PET prices go up, HDs go down. So it's kind of a – you're kind of okay in that area right. uh, of, of some source of revenue coming in that's somewhat consistent. Is, is this a fluctuation that's occurring on like a weekly basis or is it even more dramatic like uh, on a day-to-day -day basis? No, monthly is typically okay. um, how it is. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, in the last few, last few minutes, what, I'll, I'll start with uh, uh, Smokey and Scott, what would you like to see done in the plastics industry that I don't know, could improve the, the processing it, of it and the recycling of it. What are, what are some of the goals and objectives that uh, you'd like to see? Well, I'll go and then I'll let Scott. Here, here's something that happened a few years ago is like detergent bottles has always been made with HDP color. Mm -hmm. um, because the resin price got so high, they started... Uh, tiptoeing in making the bottles out of PET and so when sorters nobody knew that until people started selling you know the bells and people were getting rejections and come to find out that the manufacturers of the detergent bottles were using a whole different resin that and so you had to be really watching on the sort lines to understand what was HD and what was PET 
Um, I haven't. I think they got rid of that because there was so much confusion in the industry that, um, you know, they tried to cut costs, but then it hurt the recycling portion of it. And when real quick, when you say sort lines, you're talking about people doing the sorting, not necessarily machines. Correct. Yeah. So this is a very can be a very labor intensive process unless you say you have a digital type sourcer, which is a very expensive process. So Correct. it's it's complicated either way, right? Correct. Okay. So, um, Smokey, what what would you like if you could wave a magic wand? What would you like to be seen done uh, to to make recycling of plastics a more efficient process? I would just like to make sure that you know when they're doing these programs and trying to make a change, it's easier. Um, make sure they get input from, you know, the whole, the whole country, uh, because it may, you know, certain plastics can, yeah, go to the landfill and decompose, but right. then it hurts the, the recycling value if these are mixed. Um, cause they did do it on PET. They had a food grade PET that was going to decompose uh, quite a few years ago and it, it failed miserably cause it was contaminating the good PET. Ah. Oh, I see. So, so PET that w that could compose or decompose was okay for the landfill, but you didn't want to see it in your recycling line. No. Nope. <laughs> okay. All right. So, so all right. So, those are the ongoing challenges you have. I'll ask the the same question of Carolyn. If you could wave a magic wand over at Recycle Utah, besides having more space, what would you? Uh, like to see done with your plastic sorting processes? Um, again, I'll go back <clears throat> back to reduce. Um, we tote that a lot. You know, Mary's in the classrooms all the time, kind of convincing kids to, you know, take a plastic pledge to reduce their own, you know, get their parents to bring reusable shopping bags, kind of like that. Reduce would probably be first, and then magic wand bigger would probably be put some pressure on the plastics producer, you know, the people that, you know, the companies that use plastic, you know, the detergent bottles, the drink bottles, everything like that to get more consistency. I think kind of like Smokey was saying that, you know, hey, we're making some good progress with the PET closed loop circular process with the PET product. But then we throw in a new thing and like, hey, this is compostable PET. And then we mess up all the progress we've made. So I would love to see less types of plastic overall, I think would be a good start. Mm, okay. And Carolyn, do you have um, any guidance or reminders specifically for our local community about what kind of plastics can and can't go in our curbside and what kind of plastics can and can't come to Recycle Utah? Well, thank you for bringing that up. Um, no plastic bags in curbside, nothing whatsoever. No pl soft plastic in curbside. Don't even think you live in a special exception. Um, <laughs> Summit County, no plastic bags in your recycling. Including the trash bag that right. you may be collecting it in. Yeah. Um, so but, wait, the trash bag, the the uh, grocery bag, plastic bag, the bag that let's say my newspaper might come in for those who still get a newspaper delivered to them, but, <clears throat> and the plastic bag that I put my vegetables in. Those are all plastic bags that you're Correct. talking about. Yep, none of those. And do not bag your recyclables in a plastic bag. Um, they should be loose in your bin. I know this can be a little bit challenging for those in Eastern Summit County. 
um, and maybe just fill your bin a little bit less so things don't blow away or something like that. I understand that's a challenge out there. But really, um, everything should be in your bin loose. And then you think about it going to the Sorton facility in Salt Lake, and then it's all loose on the conveyor belt. If your plastics, I mean, if your recycling is tied up in a plastic bag, it's tied in that bag, and you're at the mercy of the person working the sorting line to know if they're going to open that bag to consider to recycle it or not. Um, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. You know, the best chance of getting your stuff recycled is keep it loose in the bin. And while we're on it, no glass in your bin either, and no styrofoam in your bin either. This is for Summit County residents. I know Wasatch County, um, a lot of time they work with Recyclops, and they have some different rules. And I do think they actually use plastic bags. But again, if you're a su Recyclops subscriber, they're very good at education and tell you how they use their program. Fantastic. I think it's always good to get the, the latest on what should go where. Um, so we appreciate that. I think it's about time for us to wrap up now. Right. Um, and so um, let's just get, you know, a, a website, uh, maybe Scott and Smokey, uh, let us know uh, where to go if we want to learn more about uh, your business. Uh, I'd be happy to. Uh, we have a Facebook page, uh, Instagram and LinkedIn We under prorecyclinggroup.com. Uh, that'll link you to our other websites as well for the Pro Baylor Services and Interwest Paper. And then we have a smaller division that we have is Pro Polymers, which is basically all of our industrial plastics that we handle. We have a, uh, um, a regrind facility here in South Salt Lake where we actually take industrial plastics and regrind those back into uh, smaller products where a, a end user will make those into another plastic product. So, um, great. One two six six thirty six ten is our office number. We're mm -hmm. always happy. Oh, oh did yep. we lose you, Scott <laughs> or Smoke? Did we lose them? Are you there? Uh, oh, okay. yeah. You dropped. Say off. that one more say time. That, say that number again. Yeah, eight zero one two six six three six one zero. And uh, we're always happy to help. We like to come out and do site surveys. Um, we like to do educational aspects. We like to do as much as we can with the community. So let us know how we can help. Thanks. Again, from me, big kudos to Scott and Smokey. They really enable Recycle Utah to do a lot of the work we do and keep a lot of our materials within the U.S. And all of our materials getting recycled. They're a good partner, and uh, we're lucky to have them so close by. Great. Fantastic. Right back at you, Carolyn. Thanks. All right. Yes. Uh, uh, Smokey Pack, Scott Simar with Pro, Pro Recycling Group, Interwest Paper. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. And as always, Carolyn Wara, Executive Director with Recycle Utah. Thank you. For Thank stopping in. Thank you. Happy New Year. All right. Same to you. Let's take a break. And when we come back, hey, why not? Let's talk snow and precipitation and uh, soil moisture and, you know, science. Yeah, we will be, <laughs> we'll be with Jordan Clayton with the Utah Snow Survey. And boy, am I excited to hear from him yeah. after uh, our recent precip here. All right. It's this green earth. We'll be right back. Welcome back to This Green Earth. I'm Nell Larson. And I'm Chris Cherniak. And joining us now for the second part of the show is Jordan Clayton. Um, he is with the Utah Snow Survey, and, and he's here to give us, uh, as, as he often does, an update on kind of the status of our drought and our water supply and our snowpack um, here in Utah. So, Jordan, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. Well, um, it's been a very eventful couple of days, of course, um, in the precipitation department. Um, have you guys been able to look at the, the numbers um, sort of with the latest snow and precip from this, this most recent storm yet? Yes, and it's looking fantastic. We're, um, we're finally able to provide some, <laughs> some refreshingly <laughs> optimistic news. 
So uh, we're currently sitting at about 170% of normal from a um, snow water equivalent perspective. And when I say that, what I'm talking about is the liquid water content of the snowpack. So if we melted all the snow that's in Utah's mountains right now, we would be 170% of normal for this, for this date, um, which is fantastic. That's better than we were sitting last year when we ended the calendar year quite well. Uh, and uh, it's actually the best that we've looked since 2011 for this date. Wow, since 2011. All right, so uh, past 11 years. That's a, you know, a lot of people around town say, I haven't seen snow this much, and I can't remember. And maybe you're right, it's probably 2011. That was a That's big was. snow year. Yeah. Um, how were we doing before this storm? What was the situation like? Right, so statewide, we were already above normal. We were sitting around 120 to 130% of normal before wow. this uh, last couple of days. So we were still ahead of, ahead of schedule, if you will. Uh, but this storm cycle brought about three and a half inches of snow water equivalent to the state. Again, that's a statewide number, so of course there's local variation in that. Um, but really, looking at the basins across the state, every single basin in Utah, is 160% or higher. Uh, some of them are into the 180% range. It's really fantastic, and we're definitely uh, very encouraged by, uh, by the snow we've already received. And we're actually about 65% of the way there uh, towards what we would typically get as our peak snowpack at the beginning of April. And so if we look at how much snow is on the ground right now and think about you know a, an average year so to speak i don't know what that what that means but if we're just looking at an average year we're about again 65 percent of the way there for our, for our snowpack and we still have you know about 90 days until april 1st so hmm. it's it's really great we we just want the storms to keep coming because um, that's that's unfortunately what happened last year we were in really good shape until about january 6th or 7th and then we didn't get any precipitation, more or less, until the end of February. And so um, that was really discouraging last year. I will say the current uh, prognostication, <laughs> if you will, from NOAA is that it, it, it's looking positive at least into mid-January. And so um, let's keep those uh, storms coming in. Well, I was just going to ask a question kind of along those lines. Like, okay, so what if that does happen um, in a similar way that it did last year and and we just stop getting snow, we stop getting precip? Um, you know, what does that mean by the end of the winter? Essentially, like how much more would we expect to get throughout the winter to keep us at this, mm. you know, high level above 100%? Right. So if we didn't receive another snowflake in the state of Utah, based on where we're at right now, as long as we didn't lose that snowpack until typical peak snowpack time, we would be in that um, bottom 10 to 30 percentile range. We wouldn't actually be at our lowest point ever uh, because of how much of a head start we've gotten. But obviously we would end up below normal if we didn't get any more snow. Even with all the snow on the ground, we still need to receive more. That being said, if we could keep up at kind of a normal pace, we're going to end the year above to well above normal. So it's it's still, of course, way too early to know how things are going to look again around April 1st when we get to our typical peak. Um, what I'm hoping for is that that's not our typical peak, that we, <laughs> that we push into, um, you know, closer to end of April, early May when we get our peak, because that would be a sign of a really big snowpack year like 2011. And what's interesting is that some people will think, well, if it warms up and we and the snow melts, 
okay, well, it just turns the water and then fills the streams and then fills our reservoirs, even though it might be January or February. Why is that a bad thing? But there's different ways which snow disappears, let's say. Can you kind of run through that? Yeah, absolutely. So when we're looking at a nice snowpack on the ground and, and you know, of course, like people, like you were just saying, we want to make sure we can get as much of that water into our stream system and into our reservoirs as possible. The way that we get as much of that, again, into the reservoirs is to have it all melt in a short window of time. When that happens, the soils saturate. And what you're creating on the landscape once the soils are saturated is essentially a, 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 a landscape where there's not a lot of water going into the ground and most of it's getting transported uh, through small waterways and into larger waterways downstream. When you spread it out over a longer period of time, a much larger percentage of that water goes into the ground and doesn't necessarily make it all the way, uh, again, to those reservoirs. And it's more nuanced than that, but I think that's, that's a reasonable way to depict it. Um, and so what we like to see is really not a lot of melt until, again, around that peak snowpack, April 1st or later, and then have that all um, come off the mountain in a short amount of time, sometime in May or June. Now, of course, if, if you do that, if you carry that to the other end of the spectrum, you're going to get flooding. And mm -hmm. that's not, of course, what anybody wants. But for right now, I'm not worried about flooding yet. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's worry about that problem if we get you know, to that point. For now, we're just so excited to not be talking about drought. Well, you know, along those lines, um, we've got this huge snowpack, 170% of average. What does that mean for this ongoing drought, you know? Um, Unfortunately, it's not like, oh, poof, you know, one big snowstorm, right? Like it's, yeah. our, our water levels are fine, but maybe it's significantly better. What does that look like? Yeah, that's a great question. So we're, we're still looking at multiple years of deficit. And even if we have a, a, a really outstanding snowpack winter, like we're starting off um, this one, we're still going to need probably at least two of these kinds of winters to catch up. And so looking back over the last three or four years, We've accumulated about a, depending on which way you look at it, about a 12 to 14 inch deficit in precipitation for the state. And where that comes into play is it's, it's going to take a minute to um, to replenish the reservoir water supply. It's it's one thing to make the soils wet again, and it's one thing to kind of catch up from a precipitation perspective this year or last year. But in order to replenish our hydrological systems, our reservoirs, it takes multiple it typically takes multiple winters. Now, it is possible, theoretically, that we could do it all in one winter, but that would be a, a really <laughs> phenomenal <laughs> experience. But I, I think what we're realistically looking at is uh, two or more winters of well above average conditions. And so um, this would be one of them if we continue on the trend that we're in right now. We're pushing towards the upper you know, 10th percentile, the 90th percentile for snowpack in our range of observations right now. So we're already looking at the kind of winter that we need, but we just need more than one of them. Well, it's good to hear we're on the right track. <laughs> like you said, you know, lately we haven't been hearing that much, but um, when one of the things that we obviously think about a lot right now when we think about water in the state is, you know, our terminal basin, the Great Salt Lake, and it's extremely low level. Um, what impact do you think... Um, the storms that we've been having recently um, will have, if any, on that water level. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a, a big concern for everybody. Um, so one of the things that we want to 
keep in mind is that when we talk about filling up reservoirs and filling up the Great Salt Lake as much as we can, we're, none of that's going to happen until the spring uh, or in early summer. We typically don't see much replenishment in our reservoir system midwinter uh, because, again, most of our water comes from the snowpack. But if we fast forward to when we're going to receive all this moisture from the snow, what happened last year is that we did a nice job sort of building back some of the supply in our headwaters and in our reservoirs. Um, obviously, we have a long way to go. We're still less than 50% of capacity in our reservoirs in Utah. But the way that it was looking the previous year with the reservoirs so depleted and the soil so dry, it was getting a little bit on the desperate side in terms of, you know, how much water are we going to need? And we started to get some of that last winter. And understandably, we did a nice job sort of filling up some of those basins upstream from the Great Salt Lake. And we also did a nice job as a state conserving water. And so it, the Great Salt Lake could have been worse, but unfortunately it still dropped about a foot from the previous low. And so the Great Salt Lake has a long way to go uh, to get back up to even what we had seen a few years ago in terms of its its level, its stage. Um, I'm, I'm actually more optimistic this winter and this spring because we've We've got a little bit more water in, in the reservoirs that are upstream from the lake, and I'm hoping that we can um, see a little bit of a larger percentage of the snowmelt this time get actually to the Salt Lake, and we'll see what that winds up looking like in the spring and summer. But I'm optimistic that if we continue on this trend with our winter snowpack, and because of the fact that you know there's still obviously a lot of room for improvement in those reservoirs, but some of them um, don't need water as desperately as they did the previous spring, I'm optimistic that a larger percentage of water will make it to the Salt Lake. We're speaking with Jordan Clayton. He's a supervisor and data collection officer with the Utah Snow Survey, part of the Natural Resources Conservation Service, and we're talking about all things snow and precipitation and, and most importantly, what this latest storm, and actually it hasn't even ended yet, basically, and there's <laughs> more on the way. Um, we're in this uh, atmospheric river coming off the Pacific, and so there's more more snow and precipitation on the way. Jordan, we you know we celebrate the fact that we have very light, fluffy snow here. How does say ten inches of snow, if you were to put ten inches of snow into a pot and and melt that down, how many inches of water typically comes from that ten inches of snow? Yeah, that's a great question, and it, and it, I'm going to unfortunately answer your question with. <laughs> <laughs> with a bunch of caveats, and it depends. So the reason why I'm saying that is that it depends, of course, uh, where that snow falls in mm. terms of what elevation. It depends on the kind of storm that it is. Uh, but if we just sort of generalize to, okay, we're thinking of that light, fluffy snow that we like to ski in um, at the highest elevations. If we're looking at about 10 inches of snow depth, that real light fluffy snow will be about a half of an inch to maybe an inch of mm. water equivalent. So it's about five to ten percent in a in a typical high elevation, real fluffy, you know, snowpack. And that's when it first falls. After it falls on the ground, it'll condense the snowpack will condense and compact and it'll become more dense and so those numbers will, will change. But when we're talking about freshly falling snow at the highest elevations, we're we're looking in maybe the five to eight percent. Um, liquid water density range, which is, you know, which is what makes it so nice and powdery because right. all the other space that's in there is air. <laughs> yeah. So that's it's why it feels good when you fall and all that powder when you're skiing. Right. Um, 
And what is interesting, I remember this, is that I think Friday or so, this storm, the first several or six to eight hours of this storm was practically rain. Yeah. And and then, you know, slowly, like you say, it converted over to a wet snow, which is going to have a high water equivalent to it. And then eventually, uh, Saturday night or so, it was all uh, classic snow, light, fluffier snow. But it was warm enough for it to rain here uh, in, you know, uh, December 31st or so. And that's pretty unusual uh just from anecdotally speaking but that but there's an example here at least at 7000 feet we saw all forms of water equivalents and water types uh precipitation types falling here and that like you say they can have different different impacts on soil moisture content and then snowpack etc yeah that's exactly right and that's that's a great point i appreciate you bringing that up because the other, well, one of several things that we measure at our snow tell sites are weather stations up in the mountains. In addition to the snow water equivalent that we've been talking about, which we measure with these large snow pillows, we also measure around the calendar year just the overall precipitation. So whether or not it fell as rain or snow or sleet or whatever, um, we've got these uh, what we call rocket gauges, and that's they look like you know a rocket launcher or something, but it's it's really just a large can that collects anything that falls into it. And we've got that connected to a pressure transducer so we can feel the difference as more and more liquid accumulates in those. Again, whether or not it falls as snow, um, it interacts with some liquid that we have in the can so that we can feel the weight of that additional material. What we can see from all those precipitation cans at all of our snowtail sites around the state is, of course, the water year precipitation in addition to just the snowpack. And that starts on October 1st, and it goes until September uh, 30th. And that also really is helpful in the summer, of course, when we, we don't have snow, but we want to be able to compare how we're doing as a state from a precipitation perspective uh, to previous years, specifically in the mountains, because that's where our snow tall sites are located. So all of that is um, a precursor to saying that the precipitation for this water year is also doing very well, not surprisingly. We're about 130% of normal for this date uh, from a pre precipitation perspective, which is actually a, a couple percentages, uh, percentage points lower than last year at this time, um, but still we're in excellent shape precipitation-wise. One other um, sort of metric, I guess, that you guys look at on a regular basis, I know, is, um, is that soil moisture piece. Um, do you continue looking at that throughout the winter as well? Yes, we do, and that is also above normal for this time of year. So this is one of those <laughs> this is one of those phone calls where everything is good. Um, it might be our first ever. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I think it might be. I think it might be. I, it's a, it's really a pleasure to be able to deliver some some more positive news. So yeah, the soil moisture is above normal for this time of year. It's not uh, quite as high as it was last year at this time, but it's in good shape. And the reason why that matters, and, and if folks haven't heard one of these discussions before. The reason why that matters is if we have a normal or above normal soil moisture, that's really going to help when all the snow melts. Because if we have, again, that level of moisture in the soil, we get a, what we consider a normal return on our investment, meaning that the, the expected amount of water ends up in our streams relative to the amount of water that's in the snowpack. We have these relationships between the snowpack on the mountain and how much we anticipate in the streams and reservoirs. And that depends on a roughly average or above average amount of soil moisture. 
And that's what we have this year. What we didn't have uh, a couple of years ago was that amount of soil moisture. We had record dry soils. And we saw the impact that that had where we lost so much of that soil, excuse me, so much of that snowpack water into the ground and we really didn't replenish our reservoirs very much at all, again, two winters ago. So we're much more optimistic. Uh, like last year, our, our soil moisture is quite high, above normal in most places. And uh, that's, that's encouraging as we head deeper into our winter and towards our runoff season in the spring. Speaking of soil moisture, and melt rates i would think that soil moisture content or the soil in general general and the groundwater table potentially benefits from a slower melting process you talked a few minutes ago about how you prefer kind of more of a a rapid so to speak melting scenario but isn't the benefit of a slower melt over time uh, that the soil collects more of it and may- maybe the groundwater gets recharged? Yeah, that's a great question. And you're getting sort of deep into uh, my hydrology, my hydrology uh, 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 stuff that I used to teach in, in hydro, and it's, it's fun to get into these details. So yeah. when, we, when we saturate the soil, that does, that does a couple things. One is, uh, as I was saying before, it helps the runoff. It helps the percentage of, of water you're going to get downstream relative to going into the ground. Right. And you're right that if we're not sending as much into the ground, that we're not replenishing the groundwater as much. But the other thing that a saturated superficial um, layer of your substrate does is that it makes it easier for the water to also go into the ground. That There's a, a rate of delivery of water into the ground that's also enabled by that water uh, by that soil being saturated and so we are also replenishing the substrate when um when we see that that surface saturation now what we of course you know we could we could talk about depending on what that that substrate looks like the percentage of water that actually gets into the deep ground and into the groundwater relative to moving over the surface and it, it becomes a kind of an interesting hydrological problem but you know, when you talk about the root zone, which is typically six to 15 inches or so uh, below the surface, you're saturating the soils for sure when you get these really moist soils and then you get all the um, all the snow melt on top of that. What you will typically see in, in a nice snowpack year like this is that that stays saturated through the snow melt season and then it, it, it dries out in an asymptotic way. Um, whereas that becomes a little bit um, of an earlier, um, it, it wets up that, that root zone earlier if we have an early melt, and then we don't necessarily see those soils stay wet deeper into the growing season when we don't saturate those surface soils. So it, it does wind up helping the, um, the forage in the mountains quite a bit if we do see that surface saturation. Um, it's, it's hard to get into too many details without right. getting into like, hey, this specific site is behaving this specific way based on this geology but um, that's kind of an overall discussion okay now i look i'm i'm thinking about the the wells in the eastern part of mm-hmm. summit county that are actually dry you know uh, people's uh farmers and, and municipalities whose wells water wells are literally dry obviously and, and yeah. the dropping levels and those in in western summit county yeah. as well yeah mm-hmm. so so I mean, obviously, look, this is this is good news across the board. Uh, everyone benefits Much from needed this. moisture. Yeah. Uh, no matter how it melts, at what rate, it's it's going to benefit unless it 
melts too quickly, and then now swan or floods, and then people <laughs> call you to ask you what you're going to do about it. Yes. <laughs> Those some of our favorite calls, but hey, we're happy to take we're happy to take those calls. But it means we get a a great snow year and a great moisture year. Okay, That's correct. So, yeah. All right, so we we got to wrap up, Jordan. You uh, when's the next report? When's the January report? Or yeah, when's the December report come out? Yeah, so we published our December climate and water report back around the fifth or so of December. We're we're gonna have our uh, January 1st, water supply outlook report and comment and water reports come out hopefully by the end of this week. It's a little bit um, jammed up with everybody returning from the holidays and things like that. But we'll get those out as quickly as possible. And they'll have the, the January 1 water supply outlook report is the first report of the winter that has our forecast for what we anticipate in terms of runoff and reservoir filling from all the, um, from all the snow that we have on the mountain right now. Of course, it's the most uncertain because we're pretty far from april 1st still at this point we don't mm -hmm. really know what the rest of the winter is going to bring but at least this will give us our first kind of arm wavy picture of how much we anticipate the, the streams to fill up well uh, fantastic yeah it's always a good read it's always a great reference and and we always love to have you on for an update jordan um we have to sign off here but um yeah. let our let our listeners know where they can find your report yeah, thanks again for having having us on. Uh, we really pre appreciate getting to talk about the snowpack and what's going to happen when it all melts. So if you want more information, you can go to uh, just just type in your favorite search engine, Utah Snow Survey. Um, pop up the graph on how's our current water you're doing. You can see some things are going to make you smile, maps that are all blue for once. <laughs> so <laughs> we'll celebrate that's, that. That's really nice. Yeah, take yeah the, absolutely. Take the rest of the day off, Jordan. <laughs> well done. <laughs> Whatever you did, guys do, well done. Jordan Clayton, right, right, I wish. Yeah, supervisor and data collection officer with Utah Snow Survey, part of the Natural Resources Conservation Service. Thank you, as always, for joining us this morning on This Green Earth. Thank you again for having me. All right. We've got, I don't know, a couple minutes. We've got to wrap up. Um, hey, real quick, how does this snow, this storm, impacted Swanner? How well... Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's kind of along the lines of what Jordan's saying. One of the things we're really excited about is to see uh, more groundwater infiltration and those right. higher soil moisture levels. And, and one of the things we think about is when that wetland acts like a sponge and soaks up all this moisture, it means that we have a better chance to keep the streams essentially alive in right. our community, in our basin throughout the summer, um, because that soil will slowly release some of that water back into the streams. So it helps keep the water a little bit cooler, helps keep it running for those native fish and things like that. So it's, it's great news. We hope it, like he said, we hope the storms keep coming. We're snow dancing, we're enjoying it. And at right. this point, we're just seeing the wildlife, you know, seeing the wildlife love it. Do they, you got 10 seconds, do they get stressed? For some species, yeah. a deep snowpack is like a boon. They thrive in it. Uh -huh. It keeps them warm. For others, it's a challenge. It is a challenge. Yeah. All right. Well, you know what? We'll talk about that next more next time. week. I want to I want to learn more about that. Yeah. How that stress is But we got to wrap up. You can always email us your thoughts, comments, and ideas for future shows um, to thisgreenearth at kpcw.org. The interviews for this show will be posted on the KPCW website later today. Thanks again for joining us, and remember, this is KPCW ninety one point seven FM, Park City.